0: You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, welcome to Informed. Today I have the great pleasure of having Luke Sears on my screen. Hi Luke. Hey. You just waved, but no one can see that except me. I can see it too. Oh, (laughs) I always turn off the self-view on Zoom because it's just distracting. I just look at my own face the whole time. That's true. I
1: actually just have a huge mirror in front of me, so I can always see my... No, not really. Not really.
0: How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, very good. Very good. Today is a day of planning for our youth weekend. So I'm planning, 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 but I'm enjoying taking a bit of time out to think about what we're thinking about today. Brilliant. Um,
0: uh, now, I don't know if you saw this coming, but um, if you've listened to Informed, you'll know that I put my guests on the spot. Um, and asked them
1: in one minute, Luke, why are you a Christian? Um, what did they tell you? <laughs> um, no, uh, so, yeah, I, I did see this coming. In one minute, I was thinking about this before. I think for me, um, growing up, I grew up in a church family, and I heard the gospel, and I saw the gospel, probably more importantly, I saw the gospel lived out. I saw people who love Jesus and follow Jesus. Um, and so I received that. And as I got older, I realized more and more, actually, this is, you know, Jesus is the real deal. I, I met with him myself, I'd say. I don't I don't mean in any particular kind of overwhelming experience, but it's in I just in multiple ways felt I really know who this Jesus is. I really actually believe, you know, he is who he says he is, he's the son of God. He is the King of Kings. And I want to, I want to give my life to follow him. So I think that's, that's me. Cool.
0: Very cool. And um, if I can attempt a seamless segue, uh,
1: presumably in the process of that was reading the Bible. It was, I can, yeah, I can actually remember the the summer where I, I realized, Oh, if I take God seriously, I need to take his word seriously. And that's when I started reading the Bible. So, yeah, that seamless segue, indeed.
0: Yeah. how Just to derail my own seamless segue, how old were you when that happened?
1: I can't remember. I was on holiday. Um, and so my mum would probably be able to tell me how old I was because she remembers. <laughs> I, I think kind of early teens. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Cool. Well, any early teens
0: listening, um, open your Bible. Um, And we're going to help, we're going to help everyone to open their Bibles today because we're going to talk on this episode of Informed about um, how the whole big picture story of the Bible fits together. Um, uh, The Bible is a collection of many different books written by uh, numerous different people uh, in different places, in different languages, spanning a long period of time, Um, but they they together tell one story. They, they tell different facets of that story. They tell different stages of that story. They tell the story in different ways, but they're all telling the same story um, because they're telling God's story, the, the true story of history and of the world. Um, and so we thought we'd try and show that today um, in in a few ways, but particularly to start off just by walking through uh, the biblical story from start to end and pick one particular theme, one thread that runs through uh, and that's the thread of the presence of God, God uh, God dwelling, God living with his people and just see how that theme develops um, as we go through the whole uh, Bible storyline and then hopefully later on we'll have time to pick up one or two other, um, uh, one or two other ways that we can uh, think about how the Bible fits together um but we think about
1: the presence of God
0: it's there right at the beginning isn't it
1: yeah I think yeah I think right in Genesis chapter one so Genesis the first book of the Bible um is right there on page well I was going to say page one You probably have a contents page you probably have a copyright page all that stuff but in the first actual page of our Bible um God creates God creates the world um, and in everything he creates he creates um, humanity. He creates Adam and Eve and they are placed in a garden and it's quite I've, it's fascinating. I feel like I've read the story I don't know hundreds of times maybe um, and there's lots clear about it and there's lots that's mysterious about it but there is a sense that they were with God there. Um, I think that's made most clear because there was a sense they were kicked out. Of the garden mm-hmm. moved from his presence later and that was significant um, but right there the uh, very early stage of the bible they were with God in some very special way in in the garden of eden mm.
0: and it's interesting the way uh the way that the garden is described um reminds you of the way the temple is described um when, we, when you get to that being built later in the story. Or perhaps it's the temple reminds you of Eden, uh, depending yeah. on which way, around, which way around you look at it. Um, but, you know, things like uh, things like cherubim guarding the entrance or um, the, the kind of uh, all the um, nature-based decoration in the temple that makes it feel like, oh, it's like the pictures of garden. Um, uh, what else is there? Lots of pomegranates. You think, why are all these pomegranates on the temple? But it's supposed to remind you of a
1: garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is this. Uh yeah, all the specifics aren't in my head right now, but there are so much kind of beautiful garden imagery. Um I think one of the also one of the fascinating things thinking about was Genesis one language reflecting the temple or vice versa. But what do you put in a temple, or at least what would the pagan worshippers put in a temple right in the center? You put your idol or your image exactly, and so there, right? Yeah, right in um, in the first chapter of the Bible, we see that us as humans, man and woman, we are made in the image of God. Right there in creation, yeah. the great temple of God. Yes,
0: and that's that's why um, that's why the second of the Ten Commandments is don't make images. Um, I don't think it's I don't think that's saying don't worship other gods because. That's what the first commandment's about. The second commandment is saying, okay, given that you're worshipping the true God, don't make a picture of what you think he's like. Um, You can't do that. That's his job to to give you an image. And actually the image he's given us is mankind, men and women living, breathing, relating uh, people, nothing that you can make out of gold or whatever.
1: That's really cool. I don't, yeah, I don't think i thought that through before. I'd always thought, the first and second commandments, they seem quite similar. <laughs> that's, that's a really helpful kind of, um, yeah, distinction between the two. Um, yeah, that's, that's cool. Brilliant.
0: Yeah. And then if, it, if it's mankind's vocation to be the image of God, then when the man, capital T, capital M comes, um, no wonder Colossians says he is the image of the invisible God.
1: Mm. Um
0: Anyway, we're we're rushing ahead of ourselves. Um, yeah. <laughs> th- so creation temple. There's a, there's another hint, um, which which some people point to, which is apparently um, in ancient Near East um, temple inauguration rituals, they they lasted seven days, okay. and they they culminated with the bringing of the image into the temple. You think, oh, why why have you got this this sort of seven day poem thing going on in in genesis one um maybe that's why anyway brilliant um so so you 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 launch into genesis the first book of the bible with this sense that um uh this this garden eden maybe the whole creation is there to be a temple to be a place where god is present with his people um now, you, you alluded to them being kicked out of the garden. So why don't you walk us through the next few bits of the story? What, what happens um, as we work our way through Genesis?
1: Yeah. Wow. OK, let's try and do that briefly. But so we get we get to all the way to the third chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter three. And we get the story, what's sometimes called the fall. Your Bible might title it as the Fool. fall. Um, but it's a story of where God has given a commandment to Adam and Eve, a uh, command not to eat of a particular fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad or good and evil. Um, and you read in the story, they do that. They do take that. The serpent comes and tempts them and, and they take the fruit they eat of it. And so they're banished from the garden. Their creation is put under a curse. Um, there is there is. a a sense of kind of being separated from the great creator and sustainer of life means that life begins to kind of decay. Life begins to fall apart and they are taken out of the presence of God uh, and put outside of the garden, not to be able to return. Um, So then, then we kind of, I guess we could go into great detail, uh, but you see humanity, Adam and Eve, and then the next generations living outside uh, of the garden, there are different interactions with God, there are different characters in that time, those who um, still call out to God, those who know God, those who reject him, um, and are, you know, living in violence and 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 uh, various things, um, and the story kind of goes on and on and on, dare I say, even skipping over the flood, I don't know if you wanted to s- stop there, but really, that's a really important feature, and I think we might have time to loop back and think about covenants later and mm. think about the floods. Um, but we go on and on until we meet a, a, a particular human being called Abram, where I think it's kind of the next, one of the next huge turning points uh, in the story of the Bible begins.
0: Mm. And, and within the flow of Genesis, it, it really zooms in. You've had these kind of chapters 1 to 11 quite big picture, generic humanity stuff. And then we zoom in on, on one particular man, one particular family. And God says that through this family, he's going to bring blessing, which reverses the curse implicitly of, of chapter three.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So as you said, it's kind of the next, the rest of the book of Genesis is focused just on, this one guy abraham and then his his descendants for the next two or three generations um and yeah we see we it's kind of the first real glimpse of hope um there are, there are threads of hope in the first 11 chapters of the bible but this is the maybe this is where god will start to bring kind of redemption to humanity um i don't know we we were going to pick up we're we're wanting to really focus on kind of the presence of god as we go through so i want to simeon are there particular things that you see in the story of abraham or his descendants isaac and jacob which you think particularly help us understand the presence of god in that section it's interesting i think it's, it's to me it's the kind of section
0: where if you read through it you think oh right yeah this happened this happened they saw an angel they saw god but when you stop and zoom out you sort of think, hang on a minute, this part of the Bible is maybe a bit unlike what comes before, what comes after. It's this season where God appears to people in really quite dramatic ways. I might be overgeneralizing, but God appears to people in quite dramatic ways, but quite, or when I say dramatic, I mean tangible, like appears like looking like an angel or looking like a bush on fire, which we'll get to in a minute. Or whatever but in a sl- in a somewhat unpredictable way so you get these manifestations of the presence of god jacob having a dream or um uh, abraham uh meeting some angels one of whom turns out to be talking as if he's god um moses encountering a burning bush and so on but it's it's um it's it's sporadic and it's unpredictable um and so something quite Striking happens uh, after the Exodus once Jacob's family had been down to Egypt, grown, become unpopular, become enslaved, been rescued by God. Um, uh, he then uh, sets up an arrangement by, by which he can come and be present on their campsite in a tent. Hmm. Which, <laughs> when you put it like that,
1: <laughs> sounds like New Day. <laughs> <laughs> i think there's slightly more than that yeah so so we've yeah i think we've we've zoomed through now the first book of the bible genesis and we're now in exodus and the second book of the bible where yeah where where we start to see god's people they're the descendants of abraham the descendants of israel the grandson of abraham so they're called israel um or the hebrews um And I think you get this fascinating thing where we we really start to see the importance of God's presence with his people in the book of Exodus. Now, uh, one of the things I I was thinking about as I was preparing for this um, is a really pivotal point in the center uh, of the book of Exodus is God's God's people been brought out of slavery. Like you said, Simeon, and they've been brought to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God speaks to them, God meets them, uh, and he has just sent Moses down with the Ten Commandments. They've had like it it, it reads really like a, a marriage ceremony between God and his people. They've made covenants to one another. And Moses comes down at the end of this ceremony and finds God's people already essentially committing adultery with their God. And uh, the, the golden calf story, if you know it. Um, And what's fascinating about that is what happens next is Moses intercedes for his people. And the thing that he is most desperate to ask God for is that God would have his presence with them. That God would not just God says to them, guys, I won't destroy you, but I'm not going with you. And Moses comes to him. I think it's Exodus around Exodus 33. And he's saying to the people, he's saying to God, God, no, you must go with us actually we're just like any other nation if your presence is not with us um i'll read just a few verses from exodus thirty-three, sixteen 16 or 15 and he said to him moses said to god if your presence will not go with me do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that i have found favor in your side i and your people is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth, and so Moses is, is, is wrestling with God in prayer, he is interceding, he is throwing everything, it's an amazing passage, because he knows that if God's presence is not with his people, really there's no point, point. and God's God agrees, of course, God agrees. This is what he wanted to see in his people. He wanted a heart that longed for the presence. And then you go through the rest of the chapters of Exodus, which a huge proportion are made up of what I used to think was boring detail. And so a huge amount of the end of Exodus are details describing jewels and curtains. Um, if Miriam's listening, I wasn't cutting curtains. I'm so, so sorry. Um, but beautiful embroidery and beautiful tent making. Why? because the very last chapter and the very last passage of exodus says that this tabernacle or this tent was built and god's glory filled the temple uh, the the tabernacle and god was finally in the midst of his people and so this the end of exodus is this huge crescendo that finally god is in the middle of his people
0: mm. and through exodus god's presence has been kind of manifested by the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. And at that moment, the cloud fills the tabernacle, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and Moses can't even go in. Um, yeah. uh, oh, amazing what, what that looked like.
1: And, um, and what's, what's amazing before is actually just before the passage I read a second ago in Exodus 33, Moses is meeting with God, it says in a tent of meeting. And one of the specific things it says is this tent was far outside the camp. Mm. It makes really clear you know moses could meet with the presence of god but it was far away from the people but that was never god's desire god's desire is this right at the end in exodus 40 to be right in the middle with his people Mm.
0: and it is right in the middle isn't it they have this layout of where they all pitch their tents and the tabernacle is is a cross-shaped layout isn't it with the tabernacle right in the middle yeah or something like that anyway yeah um uh luke's miming which none of you can see
1: um <laughs> i'm juggling as well i'm not
0: <laughs> and you've got the problem of how how is this holy god gonna live in a tent in the middle of this sinful people um and so he sets up uh he sets up laws standards which they have to keep um to reflect his holiness he sets up a sacrificial system uh which can deal with their sin he uh, sets up a separation um, whereby, you know, you've got like these concentric zones within the tab the tabernacle and and um, uh, and so God's presence is kept uh, kept away from from the people, uh, but He's there. You know, you could come out of your tent and point at the big tent in the middle and say, "That's where God is." Obviously, God's everywhere, um, but He He makes His presence known in particular places. Um, at particular times and that's that's uh, where he was doing that and so it's a tent because they're nomadic isn't it they're they're en route from Egypt to uh the promised land uh Canaan and um, the area that we now call Israel Palestine um they're en route uh they have a 40-year diversion because uh, most of them don't trust that God can can uh, take them into this land um uh, but eventually uh, he does. Uh, under Joshua, and um, the people go in under Joshua as as he leads on behalf of God, and um, they start settling this land, uh, which God promised to Abraham, didn't he, uh, to to give him uh, a place where they could live. And it's not um, God's um, God's purpose for them. It's not so much. It sounds like he's singling out a particular family for favorite favoritism favoritist treatment but it's more that god is blessing them in order that they will be a channel of blessing to the whole world um and yeah. um he's establishing them as a nation as to be a key part in his plan of salvation because one of them will be uh, the messiah through whom the whole world um will be blessed yeah. so um and so they they move into uh the promised land go through a very dark time Uh, in the judges where um, there's no king and everyone does as as they please. And um, then off off the back of, in the midst of that dark time of the judges, um, you have the book of Ruth, where it says in the days that judges ruled, um, there was this guy, uh, there was a famine, he went abroad, Um, uh, his sons married, Moabite, uh, daughters-in-law, and... um, And one of them comes back with Naomi, uh, Ruth, and she is going to be one of the ancestors of King David, who's going to be the answer to the problem alluded to in the first verse of Ruth, when it's the days when the judges ruled and everything's a bit more than a bit messed up. Um, That was an unplanned digression on Ruth. Um, I liked it. I liked it. (laughs) Um, But you have Ruth and... um, the book of Samuel, where um, uh, starts with a, um, a a couple who can't have children, and God promises them a child. Um, always interesting when that happens. Uh, happens at uh, specific moments in Scripture, um, uh, and uh, and this child's going to be Samuel, who's going to anoint um, the first couple of kings of Israel. And first first king is Saul. It doesn't doesn't go so
1: well. No, no. It's yeah. The 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 first stories of um yeah, one Samuel it's called one and two Samuel, but really he's only the kind of introducing character and behind the scenes guy. But yeah, Saul becomes the spotlight of of those books, or at least of one Samuel, um, a king who um is promising in lots of ways, um, but ultimately doesn't really trust God. He's very influenced by the pressures around him to be like uh, the kings of other nations to, to to do what the people say rather than trusting what god says and yet there's this um young shepherd boy who is introduced um slowly and uh incre- with increasing importance throughout the book of one samuel who is uh, the one who becomes king david um and so you see this rise uh of king david well not king uh, throughout the book of one samuel uh, you see fascinatingly um yeah uh, maybe that's not a, <laughs> a tangent about the spirit of god resting on specific people but um but you you, you see him grow in stature you see him uh, grow in kind of the following he has um until ultimately saul is killed in battle um David never said never lays a hand on Saul. He says that's not my job to depose the king. God will do that in his time. Saul falls in battle um, and David is um, crowned king. Technically, he's crowned king twice. He's crowned king of Judah. And then uh, I think about seven, a few years later, he's um, crowned king of the whole nation. Um, And this is a really important turning point in the story of the presence of God, because David does David does something which uh, feels like maybe should have been done much sooner. And so, Simeon, you said they were a nomadic people. Uh, the, the Israelites were a nomadic people before the promised land. And they they went with the tabernacle, the presence of God. And yet from the time of, the promi- of coming into the promised land all the way to the time of David, if you read the stories, it starts to become unclear where the tabernacle is gone. You start to not be sure where has the tabernacle gone, this central part of what it means to be the people of God. And you get stories of what the, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was one of the most holy and important parts of the tabernacle of many. But it was probably the most holy and important. And that's treated very badly at points by the Israelites. It's treated quite like a good luck charm, a talisman. Um, it's stolen by their enemies. The enemies have so much hassle by containing it. They give it back to the Israelites. Um, and so you get all this kind of this narrative of where's the tabernacle, what's happening to the Ark of the Covenant. And you see then King David is the one who says, no, the presence of God must be with his people. And he brings back the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it is quite an amazing story. Um, I can't quite off the top of my head remember where it is. Um, in I think it's. Is it the start of 2 Samuel. Yeah, it's when he's king. So I think it's the start of 2 Samuel. But it, he brings back um, the Ark of the Covenant with a few slips and trips on the way into Jerusalem, the new capital city, as it were, David City. Um, and his heart is to build a permanent building for the Ark of the Covenant, a permanent building for God. Uh, and yet, fascinatingly, God says to him, I know you want to do that for me, but it's not you who will do that. It's your son. And we'll come back to this promise because it's in 2 Samuel 7 and it's one of the great messianic promises of the Bible. So hopefully later we'll have a chance to come back to that. Um, But David's son Solomon, who is the next king of Israel, builds a temple. He builds the, the thing that will replace the tabernacle. And just like at the end of in Exodus 40, the presence of God fell on the tabernacle and not even Moses could enter. We read uh, in 2 Chronicles 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, that he's praying to dedicate the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so we get this second amazing kind of uh, a Hollywood moment. That's why I called it earlier. (laughs) This this wonderful scene of God's presence coming again into the midst of the people where it was meant to be, where God always wanted to be. Uh, And you get this. Yeah, this incredible scene of it happening in 2 chronicles 7 mm. as, as a tangent um the the book of 1 and 2 chronicles is a parallel narrative of many of the other books of the old testament so it parallels well i think technically it starts back at adam and eve doesn't it but it, I think so, it, it yeah. parallels really um 1 and 2 samuel and 1 and 2 kings um and so you get uh, similar stories uh, but with different focuses for, for various mm. reasons.
0: Yes, good to flag that up. Um, so so God's, God's desire to uh, make his presence known with his people is now manifested uh, with a permanent stone-built temple in, in the capital city of the land that he's given them to live in. Um, so uh, you've got a wonderful king on the throne, Uh, The presence or you had a wonderful king on the throne in David and you've got a wonderful king who starts well, uh, starts wonderfully in Solomon um, uh, and uh, God's presence there. And so surely all will be well. Um, But sadly not.
1: No. So so you get king after king, actually after Solomon, Solomon's son um, is the king who uh, has to see the kingdom split in half. Um, and so there's a northern kingdom now which is known as Israel um, and the cu- the southern kingdom is renamed Judah because it's made up of Judah and Benjamin and maybe Simeon um Simeon's kind of chilling in there somewhere isn't it <laughs> <laughs> not used to um yeah. uh, and a few Levites here and there um so you get these two kingdoms and and what you see really in the this is now the book of one and two kings and paralleled in chronicles is m- Really is getting worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the southern kingdom, these are all the sons of David are still on the throne. Uh, and one or two of them are wonderful, godly kings. But really, the picture is getting quite bleak. Uh, and we have ringing in our ears some of the promises, the negative promises that God made back in Deuteronomy um, through Moses, which said, If you reject me, I will send you out of the land. I'll vomit you out of the land into exile. Uh, And so what we see is at the end of uh, two kings, um, the Assyrians have come and wiped out the northern kingdom and the Babylonians come down and they take captive the southern kingdom and they destroy the temple of God. Mm.
0: And that happens on on a theological level. That's happening because um, this, this people... Israel, who are supposed to be God's um, chosen people, who He blessed in order that they might bless the whole world, um, are not being faithful to Him. Um, they are worshiping other gods, uh, and they're also not treating each other well. Um, there are issues of social justice, which are which are causing real, uh, real concern, um, and and that those twin messages. Uh, are what comes through the prophets who are prophesying before the exile, Um, uh, many of whom have books named after them that are like collections of their sermons and so on. And um, uh, we hear the word prophet and we think, oh, that's about telling the future. But actually, a big part of their job was to be unoriginal and to remind people of the the covenant that had been made with them under Moses that if you are faithful to God things will go well if you're not they won't and um and the the prophets particularly point out uh Israel and Judah's uh unfaithfulness to God worship of other nations gods and um and their poor treatment of each other and particularly of the oppressed and the vulnerable within their societies so um so yeah as you say the the northern kingdom uh, gets dispersed by the Assyrians and um, the Southern Kingdom gets uh, captured, exiled, um, uh, but not forever. They um, eventually, they they start to rebuild um, Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, famous guy called Nehemiah, rebuild um, uh, the temple. Uh, so given that they're rebuilding the temple, um, does that mean that god's presence is still with them
1: yeah so this is this is i think the fascinating thing i remember reading reading the bible um i tried to do a bible in a year uh i think i was 18 or 19 and i remember finishing the old testament narratives and you you are left pretty disappointed it's <laughs> anticlimactic ending um and we'll 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 see why but some of the prophets had been saying that there will be a second temple. If you look at the end chapters of Ezekiel, you'll see this wonderful new image of a temple. In Ezekiel 10, you see the presence of God leave the temple. And so Ezekiel is, is seeing this is what's happened, guys, because uh, we've been thrown into exile. The temple has been destroyed. And yet the end chapters of Ezekiel, he's prophesying that God will come back and build a new temple. Haggai talks about a new temple, a more wonderful temple. And then, as you say, in the the narrative books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we actually see the new temple start to have its foundations laid. We have it it rebuilt and re-inaugurated. And yet one of the interesting things is it doesn't quite feel the way the other two temple inaugurations were. It doesn't feel like when in at the end of exodus the tabernacle was finished and the fire came down it doesn't feel like when solomon finished dedicating the temple in one chronicles and god's presence came down it just feels like they finished building it and then nothing and so you see there's even an amazing thing in in ezra chapter three and they finished laying the foundation of um of the temple of the second temple Uh, And it says many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice, Um, though many shouted for joy. There's this confusion. The young men who never saw the old temple are celebrating the temple here again. The old men are saying, but it's not. It's not as its former glory was. And so we're left feeling I don't think the prophecies have been fulfilled. I don't think Ezekiel's great vision of the temple is, is this. And I don't, think, I don't think this is all that we're meant to see. The temple has not become the place of the presence of God again in the way that it used to. And I think, I feel like we're meant to be left with that sense of longing as we read the scriptures, left with a sense of things are not the way they're meant to be. And yet, this is the close of the narrative of the Old Testament. And it's not that God
0: isn't with His people at all. It's not that He's abandoned them. You you get the sense in the prophets that He's He's in some sense He's with them. He's speaking to them. He's uh, involved with them. But this this great center point, centerpiece of His presence with them, where you know His His presence being manifested at the temple. Um, just seems to be missing um that second temple in between in between the first the old covenant and, and the start of the new testament that that um temple gets souped up um by mm-hmm. herod doesn't it so by the time of jesus it looks a lot more impressive um uh, but still still um no no um uh, as far as I know, no moment like the end of Exodus or like um, the dedication of Solomon's temple. Yeah. Although some, some, some cool stuff has happened uh, and God's, um, God's been involved in, in his people's uh, plight. But, um, yeah, we, we land in the New Testament with um, uh, the people of Israel still uh, under you know, a small nation under the thumb of big empires, Um, It's not Babylonia anymore. It's now Rome. Um, But uh, they've they've had very little sort of geopolitical independence um, over the years since since the Babylonian invasion. Um, And uh, and so now by the time of Jesus, they're they're under they're under Rome. And um, uh, this guy, John the Baptist, comes um, kind of modelled after the Old Testament prophets um and uh starts preaching that um uh, people should repent because uh, someone even greater is coming and uh, then Jesus comes again in in many ways after the model of one of the Old Testament prophets um coming to Israel with a message from their God uh, that they need to repent and turn to God but um uh, he says some
1: uh, he says some striking things about the temple doesn't he He does. He does. Um, So we we find in in John's gospel, um, right at the beginning in chapter two, uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's um, what my Bible titles titles it as. It says it's um, the Passover time and Jesus comes to this this temple. So it's the second temple. As you say, it's been modified, it's been changed, but it, it is this second temple from Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, more or less. Um, And he finds in them money changers. He finds people who are spying and selling things. And and really, he's finding people who are stopping legitimate worshippers coming into the temple and worshipping. And he drives them out. And the Jews, or at least a group of the Jews, are very annoyed at him with this. They're very angry with him for doing this. And so we read in John 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, kind of, how dare you? <laughs> and Jesus answered them, <laughs> destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And then John gives us a little comment, the, the author of the book in verse 21. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. And so, we get this, this glimpse at, and we get a few glimpses throughout the Gospels that actually something quite different is happening in the person of Jesus. He's, he might be modeled after the Old Testament prophets, but there's something very different about him because in Jesus, the very presence of God, the fire that came down on the tabernacle, the, the presence that filled Solomon's temple is somehow Emmanuel, is God with us in this human being. Uh, And so Jesus shows himself to be the temple of God, the fullness of the presence of God. Um, Ironically, it's those words that are twisted and used against him as trial and crucifixion. Someone says to him, oh, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. And yet in that false accusation and that wrongful condemnation, as his body is crucified, the temple, the true temple, the temple that actually no stone or or material could ever make, God himself does allow himself to be crucified, the temple destroyed. And yet, just as Jesus promised three days later, he raised from the dead. And so we have really the centerpiece of what all the temple narratives have been looking to so far but it doesn't stop there <laughs>
0: <laughs> as jesus dies um the curtain of the the stone temple in jerusalem uh, is torn in two isn't it which is um sometimes described as as uh, meaning that you know there's now access into the presence of god for people that barrier's not gone um you could equally well see it as a sign of judgment on that temple um it's uh, it's not um it's not represented a people who are faithful to God. Um, and, um, uh, and, and actually, there's 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 a new covenant. Jesus says at the at the, the Last Supper, this this cup is a new covenant in my blood. There's going to be a new way um for people to know God and relate to God. Um which you see after after Jesus' um resurrection and ascension or before the ascension he says don't don't go anywhere yet guys um you know you are going to be my witnesses throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth um but don't go anywhere yet wait for the promise um wait for the promise which is the Holy Spirit isn't it
1: yeah so we get we're now in Acts 2 so it's the first book After the four Gospels, um, the long title is the Acts of the Apostles. So it's really telling the story of once Jesus has ascended at the start of the book, what does the early church look like? And right in chapter two, uh, we read when the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival, um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house they were sitting uh, where they were sitting and divine tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each of them. And they were f- all filled with the Holy spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. And then um, it, it, it continues. They, they go outside speaking in different languages. People say, Whoa, how do you know my language? Uh, and then uh, Peter stands and uh, uh, gives the sermon where he quotes Um, Joel, one of the books of the Old Testament, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, where he says the spirit will be poured out on all people. And so we get this this narrative in Acts 2, the the Pentecost narrative, where it feels like, ah, this is what we were waiting for. The fire fell on the tabernacle that Moses um, was, was around for. The fire fell on Solomon's temple. Um, Jesus has come and changed everything and said, just wait a little longer. And now the fire has fallen. God's presence has come, but no longer into a building, temporary or permanent, but actually into his very people. And then you get the wonderful, uh, the wonderful teaching uh, from the Apostle Paul in one Corinthians in chapters three and chapter six, that we God's people, we are the temple of God It is now us. That God's Spirit, that His very presence dwells in,
0: and He describes that in a couple of different ways, doesn't He? In chapter, is it one Corinthians six, where He says your body um, is a temple of the Holy Spirit, um, uh, and I don't want to just gloss over that and say, "Oh, that means you are a temple of the Holy Spirit." I think let's let's remember that that the biblical authors uh, uh, value and honor the physical created um well that god's made we're not just um you know disembodied souls brains um who are just you you know uh, randomly happen to be find ourselves in a body no god made us embodied people and that's a complete sidetrack uh, <laughs> but a <good> one. <laughs> um uh, paul says your body is a temple of the holy spirit so this body here um that i live in is, is a place where god lives um i say this i I just did exactly what I said I shouldn't do. I said this body that I live in. Um, <laughs> my, um, body. <laughs> my body um, is, is a temple of the Holy Spirit as is yours. But then also he talks to the church, doesn't he? And says, you are the temple. So there's a sense in which the church corporately is the particular place where God's presence is known and um, uh, as well as individual Christians. So it's important that um, we are, expressing our togetherness um our, our being part of the church because that is um our us together is one of the ways that god's presence is known in the world um and through the book of acts you see uh, jesus has uh, commissioned apostles to um to uh, take the good news of jesus um to all nations Um, And as they go, they're they're planting churches, these communities that will be temples of the Holy Spirit, um, made up of people who've accepted Jesus as their king, not just Israel's king, but their king, whoever they are, whatever nation they're from. Um, They're added in to the people of God as they as they choose to follow Jesus. John has a vision. And... um, uh, that vision uh, he crafts into a, uh, or maybe several visions, I'm not sure. He crafts into a book which we call Revelation, which he sends out as a letter. So it's a, it's part letter, part vision report, part prophecy, um, uh, and um, and in this vision he sees a whole load of stuff um, uh, worth. I think better to think about it as um, it's like he's seeing memes. God's communicating in pictures. Um, it's not as simple as just, this is CCTV footage from the future. Um, God is communicating the spiritual realities behind earthly events, um, to John in a picture, in picture form. Uh, but one of the realities that he communicates in picture form relates to, um, uh, what happens, um, at the consummation of history when, when Jesus has come back and, um, uh, Evil has been judged and God's people have been vindicated. And um, we have a vision of um, a new Jerusalem doing something a little bit odd.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we, uh, well, I'm sure we've skipped over lots of little bits of the Bible because we haven't had that long, but we're now um, in the penultimate chapter of the whole Bible, at least in the order we have it. And so um, Revelation chapter 21, we see, a new Jerusalem coming down to earth. Um, And uh, yeah, and in Revelation 21, verse 22, we read, it says, John says, I saw no temple in the city. He saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. But the glory of the Lord gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And so you you get this vision of, of what history is heading to, what um, new creation will look like. And, yeah, we don't know the details. I mean, it sounds kind of cool to have streets of gold, but what it means to have a city of pure gold, which is like clear glass. I don't even know what that imagery means. Uh, but what do we know? is that there won't be a need for a temple as if there was just a kind of the temple was always a mediated way of being with God it was always a way to to be with him but but like you were saying earlier through different concentric circles of how close you could come uh, yes the spirit is with us now as as Jesus followers, as Christians. And but even that the Bible describes as a down payment, as a deposit for something of the future. What is that future? Is that God Himself is in our midst, is that He in His fullness is in the center of His people. And so that is the very presence of God uh, in the middle, in the midst of where His people will eternally live.
0: Wonderful. So we've gone from Genesis to Revelation and tried to kind of trace through some of the big things that happen in the story, but particularly point out um, how the presence of God is one of the themes that, that runs all the way through um, uh, from beginning to end and, and helps to unify into one whole story. If we were going to rewind and, and just point out a couple of other things that run all the way through, um uh one one thing that would be helpful to maybe flag up um would be covenants um a covenant is a special agreement that god makes with his people and it's just worth flagging up that there are several through the bible well lots of covenants but several covenants that god makes um with his people and um uh the first one comes uh, with noah And the uh, after the flood, God makes a covenant with with the whole of creation, saying, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood like that again. Um, I guess in other words, I'm going to not going to deal with evil that way, which begs the question, well, how is he going to deal with evil then? Um, He then makes a covenant specifically with Abraham, um, his people, uh, his descendants will be blessed and will be a blessing to the whole world, um, particularly fulfilled in Jesus. Um, who is one of Abraham's descendants and is a blessing to the whole world Um, and fulfilled in us because we who have faith like Abraham have faith in God are grafted in to his family and it's as if spiritually we're we're his his descendants too and we're part of that covenant God makes a covenant with his people through Moses Um, uh, when they've come out of Egypt he rescues them first so it's not like I'll only I'll only rescue you if you if you do this stuff. But he having rescued them, he gives them a a load of instructions about how they should live. And some promises that you mentioned earlier that if they if they follow these commands about how they should live, um, they'll be blessed and um, things will go well for them in financially and in health terms and in political terms and so on. And if they don't follow these commandments, they will be cursed. And things will go badly for them financially and in health terms and in political terms and so on. Um, and, uh, and then we come to, you know, the prophets like Jeremiah saying there's going to be a new covenant made with Israel. And we find Jesus, as I said earlier, in just before his death, saying that um, celebrating a Passover meal, remembering, um, remembering the rescue from Egypt, but saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood and his death inaugurates a new agreement um a new covenant new way of relating to god um and that marks the end of the mosaic covenant um not the end of the Abrahamic covenant god's promise to bless the world through the descendants of abraham is still very much going on because here we are um god's promise never to de- deal with evil by destroying the world with a big flood is still very much going on because well here we are um but the, the, the specific covenant made through um, Moses um, is, has been superseded by the covenant uh, made in Jesus. And that's just worth knowing as you're reading the Bible, because huge chunks of the Bible, everything from like Exodus through to Malachi, is written under that covenant. And in that covenant, there were some very specific instructions that God gave his people. And as I discussed on a previous podcast uh, with Mike Frisby, um, those, uh, those specific instructions were given to those specific people at that time. And the specifics aren't, don't necessarily apply to us, though the general principles will do, because we still follow the same God. And we can see the kind of things that are important to him, you know, purity, justice, love, so on. Um, but the, the specific instructions might not. Um, but the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that there were those specific promises of blessing and cursing, which was basically what we would call a prosperity gospel, was how God operated with his people for a long period of time. But it was always intended to be temporary uh, as a as a lead up to the covenant that he was going to do uh, in Jesus. And so we don't now live under a quote unquote prosperity gospel in exactly the same way. We're not promised this this close link between faithfulness to god and material prosperity health going well and political implications um and i can understand why people do talk that way sometimes as christians because so much of our bibles were written under that regime um but that was a specific way god was interacting with his people for a specific period of time uh, which which is not current now, I skipped out one of the um, one of the covenants by mistake, but that gives me a very helpful segue into asking you about another thing we see going on through the Old Testament, which is promises about the Messiah. Um, and one of those comes in a covenant that God makes with David.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the ways um, I've loved kind of picking up themes throughout the bible is looking at some of the promises particularly in the narrative books of the old testament the promises that a messiah would one day come a savior um, or an anointed one and so i think we get the first one glimpsed at in genesis 3 adam and eve have sinned and yet god even while he's cursing the snake says that there will be enmity There will be, you know, division, uh, fighting. You'll be enemies with humans, with the children of Eve. And you will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. And there's just something about that which looks at there might be hope that one day there will be a son of Eve, a human being, who will bruise the head of the snake, and and, or crush the head, as it's sometimes translated. So there's a first little messianic promise there. Uh, You you zoom forwards. I think we talked about Abraham quite a lot. There's the promise to him that he would bless all nations, that his offspring or his seed will bless all nations, uh, that it's not just about his descendants, but about his descendants being a blessing for everyone. Again, there's who is this descendant? Who is this son of Abraham? Who is the son of Eve? Who will come and fulfill these promises? Because you get hints. Oh, maybe it's Isaac. Well, I don't think it's Isaac. Maybe it's Jacob. Well, I don't think it's Jacob. Maybe it's uh, the the twelve sons. No, it's definitely not the twelve sons. Uh, and you keep saying, "Who is the promised one?" And then King David comes. He's a descendant of Eve. He's a descendant of Abraham. Uh, and yet he says, "Let me build a temple for you, God." And God's response is, "No, no." I will bless you, but it will be your son who will build a temple for me. It says your son will be a king on the throne forever. And so Solomon comes and is a king on the throne. He builds a temple, but he doesn't do it forever. Well, maybe it means the descendants of Abraham. Maybe it was kind of a figure of speech. And so you see the descendants, not the descendants, the descendants of David, sorry. Maybe it's a figure of speech. And so you see the kings, but They're getting worse. The country's going into disrepute. Um, The people are turning away from God. And you think, has the promises been fulfilled? Is the promise uh, of the serpent crusher, the promise of the seed of Abraham, the promise of the eternal king, have they be fulfilled? And then you get Jesus. And if you ever think genealogies are boring, uh, you're wrong. (laughs) Because in – I can't remember which one's which. Is it in Matthew? I think Matthew starts – does he start at Abraham, or does he start? Abraham, I think he starts yeah. At Abraham, yeah. So he picks up he's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David, two of the people of the Bible who have had promises about their sons. And so we see Jesus is the great one who fulfills these different promises. And they're just they're just kind of the big ones in the narrative. We get wonderful promises in the prophets. Isaiah has wonderful things about the Messiah, who they'll be. Um, and throughout throughout many parts of the old testament um about who the messiah or the anointed one which really the king was the anointed one and uh, maybe the priest as well there's some ideas of that but really you know king david would have been called the anointed one and so where is the new david where is the true david the one who is even greater than david um yeah so that's one of the ways i love to trace themes uh through the old testament
0: that's brilliant well we should wrap up we've talked for a long time um <laughs> hopefully um what we've done is just throwing some stuff out there that's going to help people to um orientate themselves know where they are know what's going on when they're reading a particular part of the bible um but also to be able to see how it fits together and and relate whatever they're reading to the bigger picture um because uh it, each individual part of the bible uh is wonderful in itself but it's wonder particularly comes from how it contributes to the whole story of God uh, rescuing the world um, from evil, from suffering, from the curse, from sin, from death, um, through uh, a descendant of Eve, through a human being, oh, through a, um, a member of Abraham's family, through a, a king in David's line, um, through one who uh, ends up, being the presence of God uh, in human form and um, dying and rising, defeating our enemies on our behalf. Uh, It's a great story. And it's true. Luke, thank you so much for um, uh, talking it through with me today. Just brilliant. Um, You've had, uh, yeah, it's been a load better than if I'd done it on my own.
1: It's been great fun. I've loved it. Thank you for inviting me on, Simeon. Brilliant. Well, it's goodbye from me. And at- goodbye from me. I'm always bad at saying goodbye. Bye, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs>